Good morning, and welcome to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. Today is Saturday, October 8th, 2022, and we are broadcasting live from the northwest side of the city of Chicago. My name is David Canfield, and I'll be your host for this hour. You can visit us online at thechristianfaith.org. And if you'd like to send us comments or questions about the program, or if you have comments or questions about the Christian life in general, you can send us an email at notes at thechristianfaith.org. And if you'd like to uh, listen to previous editions of this podcast program, you can do that via our podcast, and you can access that under the media tab on the website, and just look for the podcast link under that tab. So uh, this morning, I just wanted to start with uh, a hymn and a prayer, because I've had this hymn going through me a little bit the last few days, uh, Jesus Paid It All. And I think that had to do with the uh, program last week, of course. That was the title of the program. We really considered the death of Christ uh, on the cross on our behalf. And so I just had this hymn going through me. I just wanted to read it, start by reading it. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. And then the chorus uh, says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. So praise the Lord for that. We can never have an adequate appreciation of the death of Christ on the cross for our sins, that's for sure. So it's just just a very good hymn, I thought, to to start the program with. So let's have a little prayer. Father, we do thank you for giving up your son on the cross, to die on the cross for our sins, so we could be forgiven and cleansed and have a way to come to you. You could give us your grace and your mercy in Christ Jesus. Lord, we just humble ourselves to you. We just debase ourselves before your, your throne and give you the program today. Lord, for the clear speaking and the clear utterance that we need, shame the enemy. Bind everything he would do to interfere with or frustrate your word from going out in this city and all across this land. Bless us for your sake and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, on the program today, we want to consider what is the proper way to really come to the Bible, the Word of God. It's such a profound book, and there's a lot of different thoughts about that. So we just wanted to have some fellowship about that. And so that's what we're going to do in the the second segment of the program. We're going to bring on Brother Mark Jordan from Goshen to fellowship with us about that. But to, to understand how to come to the Bible, first we need to have some concept of what is the Bible all about. What's the focal point of the Bible? What is God trying to show us in giving us this this book that's so much more profound than any other book that's ever been written? And so that's what we want to do in this first part of the program. We're going to lay that foundation, and then we'll go on in the second part to consider what the right way is to come to to the Bible. Uh, In the New Testament, uh, in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 3, verse 11, 
the Apostle Paul tells us that God has an eternal purpose. He uses that phrase, God's eternal purpose. You know, ever, ever since the Enlightenment uh, in the 1700s, there's been a lot of questions. People have a lot of questions. Does, does, does my life have any real meaning? Is there any real purpose to my life? Why do I exist? And, and that's because at that time, at the time of the Enlightenment, uh, in Europe, especially in France, uh, the intellectual class threw off the notion that the Bible was the revealed word of God. And they didn't like the fact that the Bible shows us mankind is fallen and sinful and corrupt. They wanted to say mankind is inherently good and so we can create the good society here on the earth. Uh, but the problem was when you got rid of the, that negative view of man that's in the Bible, you also had to get rid of the very positive view of man in the Bible, that man was created for a special purpose. So they had to get rid of both. You, you, you couldn't keep uh, one without the other. And so, uh, so since that time, as I say, there's been so much wondering so many people, even until today, they just don't know, if is there any real meaning to my life? What am I really here for? Well, the answer is found in the Bible, after all. There is a real purpose to our existence. And in that verse, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says, God made this eternal purpose in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's when you come to Christ, and especially when you begin to know him as your Lord, not only believing in him as your Savior, which is wonderful, but you really begin to come under the Lordship of Christ and to know him as your Lord. That's when you're going to begin to realize, now I know what my purpose is really all about. Now I know what my life is really for. Because that purpose is found in Christ and that purpose is explained in the Bible. And we can say in a very concise way what that purpose is. And I, I would put it this way. There might be, there are probably different ways to express it. But I would say very simply it's this, according to what the whole Bible shows us. God created us to bring us into relation with himself. That's why we exist. We exist because God wants to bring us into a relationship with himself, to fellowship with us. That's, in a nutshell, is what the Bible shows us God's purpose really is. So then we have to ask the question, how does God carry out his purpose? And what the Bible shows us is that God carries out his purpose by imparting his divine life and nature into us. He gives us his divine life and nature, and that's how he brings us into relation with himself. And then there's a result also of that divine impartation is that we become God's expression. So that if people say, what is God like? Uh, how can I know what God really looks like? God can say, Here, here's a group of people. They express who I am. You can, in them, you can see my love, my holiness, my righteousness, my kindness, um, all these different characteristics, of who, the attributes of who I am. You can see in this group of people, they're my expression. This is what I'm really like. So that's God's purpose. That's the way God carries out his purpose, and that's the result of God's purpose. Those three things, uh, I would say. And, and again, you might be able to say it in, in, in somewhat different ways, but, uh, but I do think that's a good, concise way to express what is God's purpose as revealed in the Bible. But of course, that needs a lot of definition. We need to explain that a little bit. It really takes the whole Bible to see that purpose, to understand that purpose. 
And so uh, that's what we want to just do in this uh, segment is just give a little thumbnail sketch to, to flesh that out a little bit when we say this is God's purpose. So it really begins with the creation of mankind, and that's in, in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. And these are pretty famous verses, uh, even for those who are not Christians, because they talk about how mankind was created. But uh, we, we shouldn't take these verses for granted, because what they say is so profound and so meaningful. So I'm going to read them, but pay close attention to, to what they're really saying here. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. That's verse 26. And verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is just a remarkable statement about the, the creation. No other uh, book that tries to explain, you know, a religious book or whether it's the, the, the Hindu writings or the, the Quran, nothing comes close to this statement about mankind and God's purpose in creating mankind. He created us in his own image and likeness. Why was that? Because he wanted us to express himself. He wanted to express himself through mankind. That's why he created us in that way. And then the illustration that we've often used is that uh, a, a glove is created in the image of a hand so that the glove can be filled with the hand. That's why a, uh, the glove has the image of a hand. In the same way, we have the image and likeness of God because he wants to uh, fill us with himself. That's his goal. That's why we have God's image and likeness. But because, and no other creature has this image and likeness, that only mankind has the image and likeness of God. That's one thing that makes us so very special to God among all of God's creatures. And I, I love what uh, Andrew Murray says about this. Uh, he says about Genesis 1.26, which, uh, where God says, let us make man in our image. Uh, listen to what Andrew Murray says. Here we have the first thought of man, his origin and his destiny entirely divine. God undertook the stupendous work of making a creature who is not God to be a perfect likeness of him in his divine glory. Man was to live in entire dependence on God and to receive directly and unceasingly from him the inflow of all that was holy and blessed in the divine being. God's glory, his holiness, and his love were to dwell in him and to shine out through him. So that's Andrew Murray's comment on what it means to say that God created us in his own image and likeness. So you can see we were created for a very, very special purpose, just a, a remarkably high purpose that we have as human beings. Uh, no, no other animal has anything like the meaning and the value that we have to God. You know, Jesus said, uh, how much more value is a man than a sheep? There's no comparison in the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of God. We are uniquely valuable among all of God's creatures because only we have the image and likeness of God. Now, have you ever considered when Jesus became a man, of course, that's called the incarnation, which literally means to become flesh. God took on human flesh, and yet he was able to express himself perfectly through that flesh, through that 
as a human being. He couldn't have done that with any of his other creatures. No other creature could perfectly express who God was. But because mankind was created in such a way in God's image and likeness, when Jesus took on that image and likeness, he was able to express God perfectly as a man living on the earth because that's a very special way in which God made us. And he said in, in, in John chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and they were uh, angry with him because he said he, he was saying he was the son of God. And he said, he answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? That's Jesus quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. Uh, so he said, in a very real sense, every human being is a little God. In a very real sense, that's Jesus's word here. What he means is we are a little picture of who God is because we have his divine attributes, because we were created in his image and likeness. And he goes on to explain to them, look, I, I don't just have the outward expression of God. I have the inward reality of God. So don't condemn me for saying I'm the son of God. That's how he uh, explains that. But he's saying here, every human being, at least in some sense, is a little representation of who God is. But that becomes real to us. And we, we begin to uh, realize our potential to express who God is when we receive the divine life that's in Christ. So now we need to, to see that. We need to go on to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 shows us what God's purpose is. God created us in his image and likeness to express him. And of course, it also says uh, to have dominion. If we have God's image and likeness and are expressing God, then we'll also have God's dominion. Praise the Lord for that. But today we're mainly focusing on uh, just on the, the image and likeness side. So uh, in Genesis 1, as I say, that's where you see God's purpose. But Genesis 2 shows us how God carries out God's purpose. And that's because there you see the details of how God created us. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, again, I'll read that verse. Jehovah God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You know, in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2, 19, it, it makes it clear God formed all the animals from the dust of the ground. So in that respect, our creation with the other animals was, was the same. We were formed of the dust of the ground. But what made us special in this respect is that God breathed into us the breath of life. He gave us a human spirit. He breathed something of himself into us, even in our creation. We didn't have the spirit of God yet by the creation, but we had the ability to receive the spirit of God. And that's what, again, makes us so special among God's creatures because we're the only creature of God that has that capacity to receive God's divine life. He couldn't put that in another creature. He could only put that in a creature who was made in his image and likeness. And that's so, but then in Genesis 2, to give us the capacity to express God, he breathed something of himself into us. So now we have a human spirit. We have a way to contain the divine life. And I love what the Concise Bible Dictionary says, uh, says about this uh, verse, Genesis 2, 7, and God's breathing into man. Uh, and it's, uh, this is a concise Bible dictionary in its entry on soul and spirit. It says, God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And by this, man was set in relation with God and cannot be really happy separated from him, either in present existence or eternally. 
you know, by the very way in which we were created. There's just something in us that longs to have that relationship with God, that longs to uh, allow God to come and live inside of us and to express who God is. That's what we really want. And, and we may uh, fill ourselves up with a lot of things. You know, there are a lot of joys in the human life. Like you can't say there's no, nothing joyful. For sure there is. Uh, so many happy occasions. There's a lot of suffering, too. But as uh, that statement from the, the dictionary says, it says we can't really be happy. We can't really be satisfied if we're living our life apart from God. We're just always going to sense that we're missing something. And again, as a word of the gospel here, I would just say, we enter into that relationship when we open our heart to the Lord and we say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to come and live inside of me. I just sense I'm missing something. I just sense an emptiness inside. Nothing in this world could ever fill. Lord, give me your divine life. Bring me into this relationship with you that you desire me to, to have. I just confess that I'm a sinner. I just confess I'm empty inside and I need you to be my savior. I need you to forgive my sins. Fill me with yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being my savior. Amen. When you pray that kind of prayer from deep within, when you open your heart to the Lord that way, the Lord will come and live inside with you, inside of you, and you'll begin to have this relationship with him that you've never had before, that you could never have through religion, whether even Christianity if, it, if it's just a religion to you, cannot give you that kind of relationship. It's only when you yourself open your heart to the Lord and invite him to come and live in your heart, that's when you can have that relationship. You know, in, uh, uh, when Jesus was born, there was no room for him in the inn, right? Uh, and we always feel badly about that. But where he's really looking for room is in the human heart. That's where he really wants to find a room, in your heart, when you open your heart. So I encourage you, open your heart to the Lord today and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to come and live in my heart. Praise the Lord. And you'll begin to have that relationship with him. Praise the Lord. So, so coming back to Genesis 2, uh, the question is, okay, if God has made us in his image and likeness and given us the capacity to receive his life, then how do we partake of this life? Well, you also see that in Genesis 2, and that has to do with the two trees that were in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2 verse 9 says, Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So everybody, everybody knows about the tree of knowledge. We always talk about the tree of knowledge. But a lot of people don't realize there was another tree in the garden. It wasn't only the tree of knowledge. It wasn't that God just put man there and said, look, I don't want you to eat of that tree. There was a tree that God did want us to partake of. Genesis 2.16 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. In other words, he put man in front of these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. He goes on in 2.17 and he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. He says, okay, I don't want you eating of that tree. That tree will poison you. It's a poison. Don't, I don't want you to partake of that tree. But he never said, don't partake of the tree of life. So what he's saying here, when he commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, he's saying, I want you to partake of the tree of life. That's, I want you to partake of the tree of life. I don't want you to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But I very much want you to partake of the tree of life. So, 
that's how we receive this divine life into us, is by partaking of the tree of life. You know, it's really something when you go all the way to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Uh, let me read that. It says, And he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was what? The tree of life. Do you see that? The tree of life is there in the beginning. God wants us to partake of the tree of life. At the end of the Bible, Revelation in the New Jerusalem, it says, On either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing twelve fruits, with each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So it's still there. It's there all the way from the beginning to the very end of the Bible. We have this tree of life, and it wants us to partake of this tree of life, to enjoy its fruit. Uh, and the, the last mention is all the way, it's in uh, Revelation twenty-two fourteen, just a few verses before the very end of the Bible. It says, Blessed are those uh, who wash their robes that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So what's one of the final blessings in the Bible is for us to partake of the tree of life. So that shows the Bible is a book of life. The God wants us to partake of him as our life. As we do that, we have the capacity to express who God is. And we have some, just in ourselves, we have some capacity to do that. We have some kindness. We have some uh, compassion, some mercy, some righteousness within us. But it's not until we really partake of the tree of life and have God's divine life within us by believing in Christ that we really enter into uh, our full capacity to become the expression of who God is. For that, we have to have the divine life. And that's pictured in the tree of life all the way through the Bible. You know, in, then you come to the Gospel of John in the middle of the Bible. Of course, John 1, 1 is that famous verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1, 1. But in, then in verse 4, John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life. So John 1.1 may be the only verse in the entire Bible that speaks of who God is in himself apart from his relationship with man. He's the word of God. Maybe. No, I, I haven't found another verse quite like that. Uh, but it's saying, okay, he was the word and it's telling us in this one there was life. And, of course, the Gospel of John is all about showing us how we can receive this divine life. So what this is saying is that from the very beginning, there was something within God he wanted to communicate to man, and that was his divine life. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So what is God's purpose? According to the Lord's word in that verse, is to give us his divine life. He wants us to receive and to enjoy his divine life. And so in a very real sense, we can say the Bible is a book of life. It, it's not, you know, there's so many things that are in the Bible. There's biblical prophecy, and I think it's very important to study biblical prophecy and to know for sure we need to know biblical prophecy. But I wouldn't say the Bible is a book of prophecy. 
You know, there's moral teachings in the Bible, how to be a good person, the things we should do and things we shouldn't do. But again, the Bible is not about those teachings. Uh, and the Bible shows us uh, how we can have our sins forgiven by believing in Christ. And that's a crucial topic in the Bible. Uh, but it, it's not the central theme in the Bible. It's crucial. But even forgiveness of sins, we have to realize, is for something else. Now, Romans 3.23 is a very crucial verse about salvation in the New Testament because it shows us what our two problems are. It says, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all have sinned is our first problem. We sinned. We have a problem of sins before God. And the redemption we have in Christ Jesus deals with that problem. But that's only on the negative side. And unfortunately, that's the side for many Christians. That's the only side of God's salvation they're aware of. But the other side is we fall short of the glory of God. And if you understand the book of Romans, you know, in Romans chapter, uh, the rest of Romans 3 up to the middle of chapter 5, that deals with the question of our sins, how God deals with our sins. But then beginning in the middle of Romans 5 and all the way to the end of chapter 8, it shows us how we enter into the glory of God. That's the positive side that God wants us to enter into. And this relates to our partaking of the divine life in the divine nature. Praise the Lord. So we need to be clear. And it takes a revelation. Uh, you know, It took me uh, several years after I was saved to begin to see this matter, that God wants to impart himself as life into humanity. It really takes revelation. We need to ask the Lord to show us this matter um, because it's mysterious. It's mysterious. And life is always mysterious. Even until today, the scientists have a very difficult time uh, defining what life really is. Well, if physical life is mysterious, spiritual life is much more mysterious. And, and so it really takes a revelation. We need to ask the Lord to show us his desire to impart himself as life into us. And, uh, and as I say, the result of receiving that life is that we are brought into relation with God. Uh, John 17, chapter 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and him, whom you, and him whom you have sent. So what is the result of our receiving this life is we're brought into relation with God. You know, we can only have that relationship with God because we have his life and his nature. We have to have the same nature to really be brought into that relationship. You know, you, you can have a relationship with your pet, you know, whether it's a dog or a cat or whatever. You can have some kind of relationship with them, but not anything like what you can have with your child. It's just in a totally different realm. In the same way, God has some relationship with his creation as a whole, but because we're God's own children, and John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 make that very clear. When we receive God's life, we become his real children, the real children of God, having God's life in nature. Because we have that life in nature, we can fully be brought into relationship with God. Uh, we never partake of the person of God. Uh, that's the Godhead. That's, but we partake of his life in his nature. Second Peter 1, verse 4 says, we are partakers of the divine nature. You know, whenever you receive the life of something, you have to have the nature of that thing as well. You can't receive the life without receiving the nature. So we have God's life, we have God's nature, and that's what enables us to be fully brought into uh, relationship with God as his children, eventually as his many sons, as the very bride of Christ. He's bringing us into relationship with himself by giving us his divine life.
And so that is, in, in just in a very thumbnail sketch, a, uh, an explanation of what the Bible is all about and what it means to say that God created us to bring us into relation with himself. But as, as we stress, the, uh, this, the Bible is a book of life, and this life is mysterious. And that means the Bible is somewhat mysterious. It's not just a book of black and white letters. There's mysterious things in this Bible, and we need to study it. We need to uh, uh, really spend time in it. But we have to realize it's mysterious, and it's not easy to really know how to come to such a book that's so profound and so mysterious and about this concept that we have very little grasp of in terms of our um, our own mentality. And so, as I say, that's what we want to consider in the second part of the program when we'll bring on Brother Mark to fellowship with us about that. And so we will begin to do that on the other side of the break. This program is produced along with our website, thechristianfaith.org, to help address the need for a healthy word of ministry among God's children today. In the Old Testament, the Lord tells us through the prophet Hosea, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Our prayer is that the Lord, by his mercy, may use the ChristianFaith.org website and the Christian Faith Radio Hour to help the believers in Christ grow in our knowledge both of our Savior and of our faith in him, so that we may stand more firmly for the Lord and for his purpose in these dark times. Visit us online for articles on the Bible and the Christian life and to sign up for our e-letter, which deals with various biblical topics. To listen to previous editions of this program, look for the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast, which you can access via our website under the Media tab or directly on iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions or comments about what you've heard on this program or on our website, or about the Christian faith in general, send us a note at questions at thechristianfaith.org. May this program and the christianfaith.org website be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord and to all of God's children, for his sake and his glory. Amen. Hello, and welcome back to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. And so, as I said, in this part of the program, we are going to be fellowshipping with Brother Mark Jordan from Goshen, Indiana, about what is what is the real way for us to come to the Bible? How should we approach the Bible? And so we're going to bring Mark on now. We just want to make sure, Mark, are you with us there? Yes. Great. Okay, good. Yeah, you sound good, too. And uh, so I know last time we had you on, we was a little bit... Wasn't the best connection, but but this, it sounds like you you're you're good today. So, so Mark, you you've been listening to the program, and uh, if if you have any thoughts about what we fellowship so far, but also um, uh, like we fellowship, I just wanted to ask you to begin with, as we said in the in the in the in the first half of the program, the Bible is such a mysterious book and such a profound book, and and if you have any thoughts, what what are this, what would you say are some things that really frustrate people from coming to the Bible in a in a proper way? But, but go ahead. I'd just like to hear you. Go ahead. I want to give you more of a chance to just fellowship freely in this time, so I'm not going to try to say so much. So so go ahead, Mark. Well, that's a great question. Um, I think the size of the Bible intimidates. So someone who hasn't read it, didn't grow up reading it, sees this big book, or this reverent book with a leather cover, and uh, that's intimidating. And I think the language within the Bible, especially if you grew up with King James English, King James Version, language is always, whenever you enter any area that you aren't familiar with, 
the jargon, the interior language, that's a frustration to newbies. And for a lot of people, the Bible seems boring. When they do try to read parts of it, it's boring. So these are frustrations, and here's well, you, you've done this show a little bit. What I'm going to recommend is God provides an entry point to, to get rid of all those problems. It's called the book of Genesis. And anyone sitting here listening to this broadcast who's never read the Bible or never read it much, if you would open up to the first page, I think you would get interested within about one minute. So mm. I just think it's it's wonderful that Genesis was put first. It really should be, because it basically means first seeds. And um, it is such an easy and interesting read. And almost everyone who reads Genesis, it starts with a very broad, big, big view of things. And then it focuses on individuals, and you get stories, and lots of stories, full of narratives. And, and it ends, interestingly enough, with a coffin, a death. So that makes you, it's like a cliffhanger. You think, well, what's going to happen next? And you go to Exodus. And that's also an interesting book. And then things get difficult. But if you have started with Genesis, this nice, beautiful entry point that anyone, I believe a child, can get interested in reading Genesis chapter 1, I think the Bible has a way of pulling you forward and opening up some of its mysteries as you go along. Yeah, it's certainly Genesis is certainly an interesting. If you just look at it as a book, uh, uh, a book of stories. I mean, everybody's everybody's interested in that. I, I mean, you just take it as literature because it, no one can tell a story like like that. You know, all the like Jacob's history, really something. Yeah. And, uh, uh, later on in Genesis, um, but you're right. It gets hard after that. Uh, Exodus uh, up until maybe verse uh, chapter. 17 or so is interesting stories and then you begin to get into matters of the kingdom and uh, uh, the giving of the law the Ten Commandments the building of the temple the tabernacle rather and if you if you don't have a sense of that then it can become a little bit harder at that point but you have to get through Leviticus sometimes uh, when I'm encouraging people to come to the Bible I've I, I tell them, don't worry too much. Just skim over those chapters if, if they're hard to read. Because what, what, what's worse is when somebody gets to that part and they say, well, I just can't get through that, so I'm going to stop reading the Bible. Uh, yeah. that, that's worse. So don't, but, you know, you can't come to the Bible as a religious book. It's not a religious book. And that's why, you know, some people get frustrated. You know, the, the modern atheists, they, they attack the Bible because, oh, there's, there's so much evil stuff going on in the Bible. You know, they, they don't understand it's the Bible is not trying to show us a religion. It's it's showing us how a holy God is dealing with fallen, sinful human beings to bring them into His purpose. And sometimes, yeah, things are a little messy. But you know, think of the example of Jacob. Uh, he he does uh, some pretty um, uh, rotten things at cer certain points of his life. You know, he deceives his father and uh, some other things too. But at the end of his life, he's such a wonderful figure just blessing everybody he meets and so this is how god works in a sinner's life and of course jacob is a picture of transformation but mm -hmm. but you can't come to the bible as a religious book it's it's as, as i was saying in the first part of the program it's mysterious and it's a book of life and so you have to get out of this kind of religious thought uh and that's when you the bible i think really begins to open up to you when you come to it in that way and then you you have a lot of uh, uh sense about don't just look at the bible uh, in an outward way Right, we have to look at it uh, in a deeper way than that, and maybe you can uh, 
fellowship a little bit about uh, along those lines, Mark, your feeling about that. Yes, well, you used the word in the first part, mysterious. The Bible is mysterious. So I agree, and to me, and you said the physical life is so mysterious, science can't even define it. In fact, when I was in college, the last class I took was biology. I was, it was a summer class. I took a, the only class I ever took for credit, non-credit, and I do it just to fulfill the last letter of the law requirement. And the professor, who was excellent, his name was Frank Bishop, he said, um, he started the class with, he said, um, I'm teaching you biology. Bio means life. Logi means science of. And he says, bio means life. And he says, I'm here to tell you today, we don't really know what it is. Hmm. So that's biological life. Actually, I, now that you mention it, I, that probably comes, logi probably comes from the word, Greek word logos, I would think, right? Yes, it and does. So be the, literally be the word of life. That's interesting. I never thought of that before. Interesting. Yes, all of those logics. Yeah. That when yeah. you quoted, and you, I'm going to get ahead of myself by jumping to this, but when you quoted John one, it's in the beginning was the word. That's the English translation. Logos. The Greek yeah. is logos yeah. or logos, right. and it, it's one of the most interesting building block words in all of Latin. It's just a beautiful, beautiful or Greek. Greek. Yeah. It's yeah. a beautiful word from which many things come. The word monologue, dialogue, hmm. speaking. Uh, all the sciences, every science, a lot, psychology, biology, geology, they all come from that. It's a building block thought. So when when Jesus is the one, he's the logos, he's the beginning of all that. It's pretty significant. But since you said mysterious, I want to demonstrate some of that mystery and show how it can help you. I think it helps us to approach the Bible, and I'm going to do this by giving you a little science quiz. And to our audience, I told David time I was going to do <laughs> You're going to quiz me, and I, I was sure I was going to fail it, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's, Dave said I'll fail it. Well, I hope, I hope you don't. Well, I was a history major, so I don't know. <laughs> so go ahead. Sorry. Okay, question one. Disclaimer. So it's a hot summer day. You have a glass of ice water. And after about 10 minutes, you notice water droplets forming on the outside of the glass. Does that Do those water droplets come from, this is a multiple-choice question, Dave, A- <laughs> Inside the glass, there's water in the glass, remember, ice water. B, do those water droplets come from outside the glass? And then, because I'm a teacher and you always have to have four choices, I'll add C, <laughs> neither, D, both. <laughs> a, B, C, D. Where's that water? Okay. What are those droplets? Well, we, we talked, we, full disclosure, we talked about this before, but I, I would have known this answer anyway, which is B, right? So, so. Which is what? Outside the glass. They, they come from outside the glass. Yes. Right. I, I would have gotten that one, even if we hadn't talked about it, I have to, have to say. Okay. So so where is the water outside the glass? Yeah, where that, is it? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, it's in well, the, it's it, in a gas. Go ahead. It's in the air, right? I would say. It's in the air. It's a gas. Yeah. And thus, it's invisible. Hmm. When it's on the mm. side of the glass as a droplet, it's visible. And I had a, we had a, a Bible study this week with men in our church, and one of them is very scientific-minded, explained why you can see it when it's a liquid and you can't see it when it's a gas. Mm. And I cannot replicate his explanation. But you can't see it when it's a gas. So now question two. You only have two questions in this quiz, and you, you are one for one. Do I get a prize? Okay. Question, <laughs> uh, no, because you haven't answered question two yet. Okay. Uh, how can you measure how much water is in the air, you said it was in the air, without using a scientific instrument? And for those who 
wonder what instrument do we use to measure water in the air? It's called a hygrometer. Hmm. It measures it measures that. So, Dave, how can we measure without having one? How can you, Dave Canfield, measure water in the air? Okay. Again, I think I know because because we we were talking about this before. I think I know what you're asking is. If I step outside, I can feel it, right? Is you that, feel it. You feel it. Okay. And by the way, we have five organs for um, for observing the world. God gave us five organs in our bodies. Yeah. Which of the five is used to feel that humidity? Yeah, our skin, right? Yeah, for sure. The skin, and and the, and the sense is called the sense of touch, where we say tactile. So this. Hey, I'm four for four on these questions, Mark. I think I I earned something here. Yeah, you've got an. A. I'm going to give you a star, <laughs> and I uh, will send it in the mail to you here okay. this week. But and you know, stars motivate. But anyway, um, this uh, moisture in the air is invisible to the eye, but it isn't invisible to the skin. Mm. It's perceivable mm. to the skin. And when we read the Bible, I think this is a great thought, a deep thought. There is some visual. There are visual clues that your eyeballs can pick up just reading the next word. You read this word, and you read the next word, and you'll pick up stuff. And you have to do it. It's the only way to get the Bible. It's, it's a beginning point. We, we love and revere the text. The Bible is a holy book. It's from God, and we have to read it to be able to begin to crack it. But we also can go deeper because there are invisible things in the Bible which we need to feel. Hmm. And we need to sense. So uh, after Jesus resurrected, he was walking on the road along with two people on the road to Emmaus. I always thought it was two men, but recently we had a discussion. There might have been a man and his wife. And uh, anyway, they were just, they said, weren't our hearts burning after he left? As he talked, he opened up the Bible. And the Bible at that time to them was um, the story of all the Old Testament, what we would call, what Christians would call the Old Testament. And he opened it up by showing that he was the invisible water vapor God of the Old Testament. And in, in, this, in the book of John, which you've quoted a couple times today already, he said this to the Pharisees, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. I got that? So you're looking at the Bible, looking for eternal life. He said, but it is these scriptures that talk about, he says, testify, me. So he's saying, you search him looking for eternal life, but they're talking about me. And as you pointed mm. out in the first half, he is life. But mm. they can't see him. He's standing in front of them. So I think when John wrote his gospel, he started the gospel out in the beginning, as you have said earlier. And every one of these people that attacked Jesus, these Pharisees that were always going after him, they were pretty good with the Bible, pretty good with the Scripture. They knew the book of Genesis. In fact, it was colloquially called among them in the beginning. That's what they called Genesis, in the beginning. So here's John. He's going to write the biography of Jesus, certainly from a unique standpoint. It's not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are, have a different feel. He, he's writing from a heavenly perspective. And he begins with those same three words, in the beginning. And I think he did that to, to poke his fellow brother Jews who couldn't see Christ. And I think, I've thought about this a lot, especially this week since we've been talking. At first I thought he, from the beginning, he was attacking them. He was saying, you think you know what was in the beginning? You, and they did. In the beginning, God, they see God, that's the Father, right? God created the heaven and the earth, and then later it says, and the Spirit brooded. You see the Spirit brooding on the face of the waters. 
but you don't see the sun. Hmm. So he's saying, like the water vapor. At that point, the sun was invisible, but he's there. So John's saying, and you know where he is? In the Word. He is the Word. So when God said, let there be light, guess what? That was Christ. And if you really want to get uh, broad about this definition, if the Word, the whole book of Genesis is the Word, so that's all Christ, because he is the Word. So do the math. If Christ is the Word and Genesis is the Word, the whole book of Genesis is just Christ. So I, used, I thought prior to this, this week even, that he was letting them know, you missed Christ when you read your Bibles. But now I've really thought about this week. This is why it's so good to even do something like this radio interview we're doing, because you rethink and you can yeah, deeper. Right. And I realized, I think he's, no, that's not a problem. It's pretty hard to see Christ in Genesis chapter 1 for anyone. He's not mentioned by name. You hear the creation story. But John's saying that water vapor Christ that was in Genesis 1 became a droplet. And you use the word incarnation, I'll change it. He's been condensated Hmm. on the side of the glass. So the very Christ that's invisible to the naked eye in Genesis 1 is really there. But that's okay if you missed him. He's saying, but it's not okay anymore, because there he is, and he points. See that guy, the guy you've been trying to... John wrote this at, near, at the end, right, after Jesus had lived, these, right. lived his life. He said, that guy you saw, you felt, we felt, we touched, we did all those things. You saw him, you heard him, you grilled him, you tried to catch him and get him in, and do all these things, and you eventually killed him. That was the hidden Christ who became visible, and you missed him. So you didn't feel him in Genesis 1, and you didn't see him in, in John 1. And I think that's a, a huge entry point into the whole, how you say, how do we come, uh, come to the Bible? It's, in a, in a sense, it's all Christ. <laughs> the Bible is the book of Christ. So if you start with that understanding and see, you realize sometimes he's invisible like the water vapor, and sometimes he's visible like the four Gospels he's talked about. We, we can't quite see him physically, because the Bible doesn't ever describe his physical looks. But we can see how he acted, how he responded. We can see his friends. We see the visible Christ there. But we are not limited just to that. We have, like we have the organ of skin to feel that humidity. We have a spirit which helps us to feel the spirit in the Word and to to feel Christ in the Word. Amen, Mark. So that's my, uh, what I, I really, that's my main burden Mm-hmm. when I was thinking about this this week. But, um, so you're, you're saying so to be, so the, uh, once Christ had been incarnated, or as you say, uh, with the right way, if you're talking Condens- about water. Condensated. I'm, I'm trying to, the right word, condense, one, the condense, I'm not sure what the right, condensated. I said condensated. I made it up. It's a Okay. Up. I wonder, I'm not sure, is there a word to describe? Okay. Once the the, the vapor condenses, so I think it's maybe on the glass, then you can go back in Genesis and see what you couldn't see before. Yeah. Under- yeah, that's great. And, you know, okay. as a matter of fact, I just thought of this while you are talking, that if you knew how to measure, like if you put the cold glass in the room and measured how long before it, it mm-hmm. actually began to beat up with water, mm-hmm. you could probably in your, do a armchair engineering um 
if you did some research, some thinking and writing, you could probably figure out how much humidity approximately, not just feel the humidity. You could probably give some kind of number. Hmm. If it took 10 minutes, if it took 10 minutes, for the, if the water temperature in a glass was, say, 35 degrees, and it took 10 minutes to form water beads, and on another day it took 15 minutes, you'd say, well, that day must be less humid, right? And maybe you could eventually, by just doing that, begin to get a numerical value to, to measure the amount of invisible water. That's called, you know, we have ways to do it now. Like I said, we have hygrometers, and uh, we measure it through dew point. We figure out what the dew point of the air is. Dew point simply is the temperature at which the gas, the water in the air has has no choice. It has to become a water droplet. And uh, so that's why you have dew on the grass in the morning, because the temperature gets to that point. The air just condenses the vapor, the gas, into a liquid form. And um, that's really why we have rain. I mean, the sun uh, evaporates water. It goes up into the clouds. It lifts up in, in the heat, gets up high where it's colder. The cold air reaches dew point. It forms clouds. Eventually gets so heavy, it forms droplets in the air. They fall out of the clouds to the ground as rain, and there's our water cycle. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, that's, so that's, I would not have known the answer to that question. That's for sure, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, so I'm just saying, even in your... T- living room, you can ha- you could do some reading of the Bible and not know the answer. You said about in Exodus you get to the law and different things and you get lost, and I had something to say about that. But that is, you need the church, because the church is a congregation. You need to talk to people, ask them what they think. But even by yourself, sitting there reading, you can do some thinking. You can muse. I really believe in this. Just muse on the Word and think about, well, I did read this earlier, and that doesn't correspond with that, so what's going on? And by by just thinking about the word, you start to really sense. You start to be able to measure it. You can measure the Christ that you couldn't see before. All of a sudden, he starts to emerge out of the mist. You know, you're reading Exodus, and you think, "Oh, this law." You look at Leviticus and all these uh, things, the law and all these particular things. And but when you see Christ there, just to know for someone to tell you, you know, that's all Christ. Then you start thinking, "How's that work?" And uh, like. Um, in the book of Exodus, they do the Passover. Well, so they do all this. It's, it's, it's an interesting story. They, they take a little lamb. It's got to be spotless and perfect. They cut it. They bleed it. They paint the blood on the door of their house. That night a death angel comes and passes over. Meanwhile, they eat the meat of the lamb. They eat it standing. They eat it with their shoes on. Their staff in their hand. Yeah, the bitter herbs. Yeah. A staff in their hand. They paint it, on the, like I said, on the doorpost of the house. And uh, so you think, oh, that's interesting. No, it's not just interesting. It's Christ. And Paul finally said, and later, he said, Christ, our Passover. Right. He knew what that was all about. So then you go through and you think, oh, what? So you go back and look at that story and think, why were the people standing? Well, because they're getting ready to go on a journey. And uh, this guy like, wanted them out of Egypt. Yeah, that's right. You know, get, get oh, yeah. When we receive land. Christ... Right. When someone receives the Lord for the first time, you better they need to understand something. You're now on a journey. Your life yeah, changed. Really so. You're like Frodo in Lord of the Rings. You're going somewhere. And um you're leaving the village, the Shire. And uh then so then you say, Well, um there oh by the way, in that story, one of the ways that they told them how to prepare the food, they prepared it with bitter herbs. Yes. Just a little you know, I'm getting older and my taste buds are duller and I like more spices and heat in my food. When I was younger, I didn't. Well, those bitter herbs, are. I treasure that part of the Passover story because 
I have been on the Christian journey now for 60 years, and I can tell you there's a bitter, there's something bittersweet about following the Lord. And anyone who tells you when you follow the Lord, your life, to follow Christ, your life will just be glorious, and don't tell you there's bitter herbs ahead, they, um, they're mm-hmm. selling you something that isn't true. Yeah. But those bitter herbs make the make it all more tasty. Hmm. They really add something, especially as you get older, like your taste buds yeah. dull. Those those bitter herbs, actually, they just um, they make it, you review your life following the Lord, and you think, wow, it's uh, I appreciate all the bends, all even the rabbit trails I went down that I had to back up and change direction. You you appreciate it more. So anyway, I feel so, like so. I, I think Mark, that's a good. Just to continue your analogy about the the vapor and the condensing, so you know what you just shared about the Passover, you're able to pull out of the Old Testament, in a sense, to make it condense, because Christ has been condensed in the New Testament. So you apply uh, yes. the truths of the New Testament to what the Old Testament shows us, and you're pulling Christ out of the air, so to speak, and suddenly it becomes something visible in our experience. I think that's a if I understand your analogy correctly, that's, right? Yeah, right. No, that's perfect. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Now, there was a movie a number of years ago called The Sixth Sense, and, and an Indian director, Shyamalan, M. Night Shyamalan, directed. And it's it comes with one of the biggest surprises in all of moviedom, where you find out one of the main characters was, was dead all along. And you are shocked. I was shocked. I mean, when I first <laughs> thought of it, Spoiler alert. Almost chills up my spine. A very well done movie. But anyway, the guy afterwards, I read some interviews with him, and he said he was so worried early on that they'd give it away. So he he talked about how they did that. Well, I taught literature, and I've written some creative, I've done some fiction. And uh, I can tell you, every good writer places things in the beginning, which you, it's it's a trick. It's Some teachers will call it foreshadowing, but there's things in the beginning which will alert the reader or the watcher, but not alert them to the point they, they it's all divulged. So it's, it'll be something that just goes in the brain, which they'll remember, then temporarily forget a little detail. There may be broken glass on the pavement as the jogger's jogging down the road, and the jogger bends down to pick it up and then goes on its jog, and the story continues. But by the end, oh, you find out that broken glass. I see. And that's the Bible. So once Christ appears, like you just said, the water droplet appears on the side of the glass, all of that uh, Genesis just opens up. It's right. like, whoa! Yeah. And Exodus opens up. All but, of it opens up. A good example is Leviticus. The offerings in the first seven chapters are very hard for people to get through until you realize they're portraying different aspects of the death of Christ on the cross for our sins. Then it becomes so meaningful yes. and so rich. And even these these details, which which you can't hardly make heads or tail of before you realize that, you know, it, just, it reminds me what what uh, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter three. Uh, it's like verse fifteen, maybe. Whenever the heart uh, turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Then suddenly you can see things you just didn't see before in the Word. Really, so like yeah. those sacrifices of these different parts in Genesis and Exodus. Really, so. So, like in the book of John, which really, by the way, for that Bible reader who doesn't know where to start, I'd say Genesis, I really would. But if yeah. you want to go to the New Testament, try John. It's it's really interesting. But in the book of John, the, John unveils a bunch of these. The formerly invisible Christ 
becomes visible. So I'm going to name one or two. Maybe you can add to my list. We have, we have about 45 John, seconds or a minute left, Mark, so go ahead. Okay. He says, and he says, as Moses lifted up his rod in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. Hmm. He was comparing himself to the serpent, the brass serpent that Moses fashioned and put on a pole to heal the people. Well, I don't think anyone up to that point ever thought that was a picture of Je- the coming Christ dying on the cross. But Jesus said it is. And then in John uh, chapter 6, he said, you know, Moses gave you bread from heaven. He said, I'm that bread. Hmm. So the manna that you read about in Exodus, that beautiful manna, that's Christ. And look how little it is. He's, very, he's, he's eatable. You can take him in. So you could go through the whole—I mean, John does it, and Paul does it, and Peter does it. They tell us some of these things, but— even today, we need to read them and see these connecting points. Okay, I think you're running out of time, so I'll stop there. Yeah, yeah, that is just about it. I think I think it's a it's a very good analogy, Mark, and uh, you know, I appreciate your your fellowshipping that with us because you know it, it can help people have a, an understanding, a general understanding of, of of how we can begin to come to the Bible and really draw out of the Bible. Uh, what God desires us to see. You know, we, we'd say we need to receive the divine life. Well, Christ is this life, and we touch him as life in the Word. So we need to know how to come to uh, the Bible to receive Christ as the Word. Praise the Lord for that. Thanks, so, Mark, thanks so much. Uh, yeah, we are just about out of time. Thanks so much for the fellowship today, and I think it was very good. So uh, uh, maybe we'll just end the program here, but, uh, but thanks for being with us. And Lord willing, we will talk to you soon. Okay. Okay, thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. Lord willing, we will be with you again next week. You've been listening to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. You can visit us online at our website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you have comments or questions, send us an email at questions at thechristianfaith.org. And to listen to previous editions of this program, look for the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast, which you can access via our website under the Media tab or directly on iTunes or Spotify.